Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Andy, it is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. I love The Next Reel Season 4. Do you know why? I don't. Why? Because we got to talk about my favorite movie, Terry Gilliam's Brazil. That's not even an adaptation. Uh, no, but it was such a great part of our, of our great Terry Gilliam series. And a few others in that series were adaptations, like The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, adapted from Raspi's stories, and La Jete, which inspired 12 Monkeys. Oh, right. And, and for our Man With No Name trilogy, we saw how Sergio Leone's A Fistful of Dollars was basically stolen from Kurosawa's Yojimbo. We added Labor Day to our Jason Reitman series, adapted from Joyce Maynard's novel. Oof, there's one we'll always regret. Our big Stephen King series covered adaptations like The Shining, Cujo, Christine, and Stand By Me, great horror and coming-of-age tales. Another Coen Brothers adaptation, too. We got to talk about how they turned Homer's The Odyssey into Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? For our holiday series, we did The Bishop's Wife and The Poseidon Adventure. And who could forget seeing Alec Guinness in the adaptation of Kind Hearts and Coronets during our series dedicated to him. We really need to do more of his films. Truly. We had our first film noir series with classics like Double Indemnity, Detour, and Out of the Past. And our black and white cinematography of James Wong Howe series with The Thin Man, Sweet Smell of Success, Seconds, and King's Row. So many adaptations. Oh, you're not kidding. Dive deeper into these originals and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book you buy helps support our show. Get the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and start reading today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. 
It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. You don't even really care. You're not really listening to me. You don't even really care. Boom. A parrot can do that. (laughs) What was that? Exactly. Mm. How are you? I am, you know, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> so far as I, I really am on the edge of my seat. Uh, 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 no, I'm good. I, I am. Uh, do you ever think back to like shows that you watched when you were young shows that, you know, seemed to really take a big place in your childhood and then you go and you look it up on like IMDb or something, and you find out, oh, that only actually run for eight, ran for eight episodes or, or yes. one season. Yes. Like, oh man, that informed my childhood in so many ways, <laughs> but it only played for those few episodes. Yeah, like what? Give me what is you? What is the one that you that has has you fixated right now? Well, the one that has me fixated right now is because it's in the entertainment news this week, which. <laughs> Which is? I was very excited when I saw this, and I, I'm not quite sure if I should be or not, but um, it's about the TV show Manimal. <laughs> oh, why is it? Why would it possibly be in the entertainment press this week? <laughs> Do you remember the show? Oh, yeah. 1983. Right. It was about a, a man who, uh, I guess he was raised in Africa, but he also had, quote, master of the secrets that divide man from animal, and he could actually turn into like a bird or a. It right. always was a bird or a, like a black panther. Yeah, and it always made me think a lady hawk. Ah, yeah, yeah. Well, Except for it wasn't the same period, but right, a little different. I was always very excited about this show for some reason, and it's in the news this week because lo and behold, Will Ferrell and Adam McKay no. <laughs> no. are actually going to make a manimal movie. <laughs> Uh, yes they say mckay says i think it's right down our alley it's what we do it is down their alley (laughs) it's tongue-in-cheek and has an action component but overall it's a comedy like the catcher in the rye or the sound of the fury (laughs) manimal has always been one of those elusive projects every producer dreams of taking to the silver screen i know the movie will be funny and entertaining but will it be the first film to win a pulitzer We'll just have to see. <laughs> First film <laughs> to win a Pulitzer. Oh, dear. Yep. No, you know, I, I don't. Uh, I, Manimal was not one of those that, that really I, I was into at that, in that period. I mean, I remember it, but I, I didn't, like, tune in every week. Well, yeah, and I don't know if I ever tune into anything every week, but I oh. tur- tuned into things. Airwolf. I guess, right. well. Airwolf, I please. I never Airwolf. Jan Michael Vincent, Ernest Borgnine. This is why that Jan Michael Vincent joke didn't work a few weeks ago. (laughs) I think that was like two years ago, (laughs) that joke. What about V? 
Didn't you I, ever watch V? Night, that I was 1984. I wasn't allowed to watch V. <laughs> oh. So you're calling my parents losers. <laughs> no, I, see what you, you, I see what you did calling there. my parents losers. <laughs> Mom, Dad, somebody, I love you. Somebody is a loser in this scenario. <laughs> oh. oh but man. really, it was aliens from space. Come on. With the, They uh, ate the mouse or the rat. Her mouth distended, and she ate the rat. Turns out they're all lizards. Spoiler. <laughs> oh, wait. I got that backwards. <laughs> Always say spoiler first. Oh yes, right. The ripcord. Can I tell you? I have some. Uh, I have some. Uh, I have an admission of of horrible guilt. Oh, That's a, it's a whole series of admissions this week. Wow. Yeah. That sounds like college. Well, for some of us. <laughs> I unfortunately, you would know. I here's the thing. First of all, Netflix late at night. You make bad choices. <laughs> and mine was Sharknado. Ooh, yeah. bad choice, though. Huh? I did that. Have you seen it? The whole I thing? haven't, but I want to. <laughs> you should. I mean, you should. You owe it to yourself as I a think cultural... Everybody, yeah, I'm I mean... going to do Sharknado and Wolf Cop back-to-back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this one was... Wow. Um, so, I, you know, you, you just you turn things on, and it shows... I don't know why. I don't know what I... I don't remember watching anything that would make the Netflix algorithm think that Sharknado is a related title that I need to be recommended. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I don't know what it is that made that happen, that confluence, that, that sort of planetary alignment, but it showed up, and I thought, I'm going to give it a shot. And, um, you know, it was, it, it, was, uh, it was so bad. It was so bad all the way through that it's it's one of those that I don't know what chord it struck in our cultural gestalt that made people think it's cool to watch this nonsense, but it is it's really bad. Tara Reid is uh, is really I mean you know Tara Reid Ian Ziering uh, they showed up. <laughs> others others showed showed up as well. John Hurd, John, John Hurd was in wow. this movie. Yeah, oh, it was John. terrible. So then I, uh, okay, so I'm going to move on from that one. But I, I just want it to be on the, let the record show. I've seen it. I've admitted it. And I hope I, I'm, I'm shooting for an acquittal. <laughs> I, uh, I then, I, you know, my son, I realized my son had never seen uh, any of the Transformers movies. And with all the Transformers talk, um, you know, he, he was, he was pretty excited to see, to see it. Oh, oh. I did not take him to it. Okay. Uh, but I did, we did, you know, we, we got them, the first three, and we started watching our way through them. And, you know, I, this is why I feel redeemed. First of all, you know, they're popcorn movies. They're, they're, there's a lot of really exciting stuff going on in there. And I was a big Transformers kid. So yeah, I, absolutely. I, yeah, I was totally me right there. And uh, so it's, you know, it's kind of exciting. It's exciting to see what, what happens on the big screen and what Michael Bay blows up. Then I watch the behind-the-scenes stuff, right? right? And that is more interesting than the movies themselves. <laughs> and it makes the movies better to yeah. watch what he does. The, the, you know, and what is most surprising there is he's one of those directors who, uh, surprisingly, does not use a lot of CG for particularly the big set pieces and pyrotechnics. Yeah. There is a lot of practical stuff going on. I mean, to, to be fair, there's a lot of CG 
all many of the main uh, characters giant, are CG. Giant robots, right. <laughs> and when they blow up, you know, major cities like Chicago, of course, there's some stuff. But, you know, anytime they go in the desert and, uh, you know, they he blows things up better than I think any other person working in film, period. I mean, he blows things up. And one of the most interesting uh, bits of commentary from the uh, uh, from the, the director, the effects director, I can't remember his name, on the second movie, he said, um, you know, we have never seen in the history of cinema a director put actors in greater danger um, due to explosions on set. Uh, wow. He puts these people in explosions and just says, okay, run and hope you don't get swallowed by the flame. <laughs> and so I, uh, I found that I actually found it really compelling. And so it made it more interesting to watch the first three movies. And then uh, I did it. I went to see number four. Oh man. And I thought I was going to be the only one in the theater until this other schlep, just like me came in and sat two rows directly in front of me. We didn't look at each other. We didn't acknowledge <laughs> the shame and uh but we did we did see the movie together wow yeah you did it we did it and you admitted it i did i have to admit it you you, yeah. you know you I'll, and i'll see it eventually i'll are, see it eventually but it'll be it's it's a it's a it'll be a renter for me yeah it probably should be I'll, i yeah. did not see it in 3d or imax or anything like that but i gotta tell you it he blows some stuff up seriously and you know what he makes the transformers really kind of uh like moody teenagers. Oh, goody. They're not good, they're not good guys. <laughs> they end up being just really mad all the time. Uh, he's been yeah. doing that forever because uh, I remember Sean Connery getting really, really angry at him uh, when, they made, when he made The Rock uh, because there was that shot when he and Nicolas Cage had to jump into the water and the, as the giant ball of flame shot yeah. over their heads. And Sean Connery just was so mad that he made him do that because he did not want that fire to be over his head but uh i don't know somehow bay won out and did it and sean was not uh, he was none too thrilled yeah. about it well they were they were you know this this one in in two they built this little village in the desert right and mm -hmm. they wired it with their uh you know moabs right the mother of all bombs he had like 40 of them and the the flames shot over 300 feet in the air just row after row after row of these explosions coming toward the camera and uh, you know they had all the helicopters flying around and they handled the cameras and they started the actors from the bombs themselves and so you know there's shia and you know, they're, they're all standing, you know, touching these bombs. That was their starting line was to, to okay, you stand there, hold, like, this is your starting line. You know, if, if you're touching the bomb, you know you're in the right place. Jeez. Oh, now run. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was something. I, I, it was really something. So I have a, you know, a, perhaps a renewed appreciation for, um, you know, things bay right now. I like the way he blows stuff up. Well, interesting. That's what yeah. I'm saying. Well, we can talk more about uh, effects and things blowing up in our show tonight. Is that a hint? <laughs> All right, Andy, fine. <laughs> Let's tell the people where we're from. Where are we from? Welcome to the next reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright. That there is Andy Nelson. Hello, Andy. Hi. And we are the next reel. We spoil movies. Do My I do that right? spoils me. <laughs> <laughs> I 
feel like I totally messed that up. There was a like a huge transition I missed. I don't know. Anyway, oh, no. hey, y- you know what? You should learn more about the show. You go over the nextreel.com. If you head there, then you can read the blog stylings of the once and future king, Steve Sarbento. You can catch up with all of our old shows and our monthly special edition film board episodes. Uh, don't miss last week. You can check or last two weeks ago we did uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. But coming up, Guardians of the Galaxy. Very excited to see that. Mm. Oh, yeah. And uh, there you have it. And now, time for the weekly update. Andy, how'd you do this week on the Instagram Guess the Movie Challenge Pony Prize, Andy versus the People? Not very good. (laughs) 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 Yeah, you know, the movie was Bridesmaids, and I I had forgotten. You know, I guess I I shouldn't have forgotten. Maybe I just wasn't thinking about it when I picked it, but... When you pick a comedy like that, it is face after face after face. There are just so many faces all through the movie because it's a comedy. It's mostly just people talking, and that's kind of you know how a lot of those movies are made. Um, so I did find some pictures to, to post. And, um, I, and second picture that I put up, though, uh, Cameron Ryan, she, uh, she nailed it. <laughs> she knew what it was. She had quotes ready. I tell you, she clearly is a fan of this movie because she she just pulled it out and was just all over me on uh, Instagram as far as uh, naming the movie and throwing pulling the quotes and uh, everything. So congratulations, Cameron, you got it. And I will. I can only hope to do better this coming week. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so so sorry. Uh, that was good though it was fun lots of I mean you know the nice thing about someone winning is then I don't have to worry about what pictures I put up then I can just put whatever (laughs) oh this is a fun picture (laughs) that's really funny well you know we have this uh, so we have this back channel uh, right you know we have we're on slack and and I uh, thought it was really amusing when at like the first picture you posted Right. Uh, Stephen pipes in with, uh, oh, bridesmaids. That's a great pick, Andy. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Hey, you know, you win some, you lose some. Yeah, but you know what? It's, it, you know, fun movie, and uh, it was okay. I want to tell you okay. the truth. I have not seen that one. Oh, really? Yeah, I've seen Sharknado, but I've never <laughs> seen Bridesmaids. <laughs> Oh, well, you owe it to yourself to correct that wrong. I know, I do. Since you've already watched Sharknado. Do you know what it was? It was that it was, a, I got it on Netflix. It came. It was in no, my it, house, but the movie cracked. It, it told you you needed, oh, oh. The DVD oh, really? was cracked, yeah. And I so I sent it back, but by then I was like, oh, I've moved on. That is the worst thing. It's that's, horrible. That's why I haven't watched the, uh, the rest of The Wire, because <laughs> Oh, like yeah. This, the second disc I got was broken, and I was just like, oh, oh well, there goes that series. Exactly. <laughs> oh, well. So wrong. All right. Well, I think we should talk trailers. You got to go first. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, I went first. Or I, I picked this trailer because, you know, it looks freaking crazy. It just looks like a wacky, I don't know what type of horror movie that, uh, I mean, the trailer alone creeps me out. It is the way that they cut things in the trailer, cut from shot to shot, um, not like with a knife across an eyeball or anything, but the way that they cut in the editing room uh, is very abrupt and jarring. The the music and the sounds they use in the trailer 
very uh just jarring and freaky it's it like all everything about it is scary and it's it really kind of took me by surprise when i watched it the movie is called the strange color of your body's tears and which is also scary which yeah it's one of those titles it's like I don't even know what to make of that title. Like, how <laughs> how does that relate to anything in the movie? God only knows. But um, you know, it's this it's this kind of I don't know freaky looking movie that's from wow, where is it from? I just lost my tab. Italy. I think it's a it's, no. I think it's French actually. Is it? Yeah. Oh man. And the um, yeah, it's. I was going to uh, say it's the Italians that kind of have the corner on weird. Well, and that's the thing is it looks like it looks like what people tell me um, Italian horror movies are like. And I'm not one who's ever really watched any of the Italian horror movies. Um, it's actually from Belgium, I guess. Is that right? Oh, no, it's going to be opening in Belgium. I'm trying to mm. find it on the page here. It's uh, yeah. I mean, the story is this is this is the. The synopsis on uh, IMDb, following the disappearance of his wife, a man finds himself on a dark and twisted trail of discovery through labyrinthine halls of his apartment building. Led on a wild goose chase by cryptic messages from his mysterious neighbors, he becomes entangled in a hellish nightmare as he unlocks their strange fantasies of sensuality and bloodshed. Uh, and it looks that way. Like I, I don't know if this, if the, the synopsis makes that much sense to me. It's like, okay, his wife disappears, and then he ends up, uh, you know, his neighbor kind of brings him in for some S and M. There's lots of, you know, shots of scary things happening, tearing down walls. <laughs> I don't know what the story really is here, but, but I do find it really compelling in the most frightening of ways. I I totally agree. It's spooky. And your boy, are you right about the the way the trailer is cut? I mean, this is a, you know, see the trailer just for the art of the trailer. I mean, it's it, oh, it's yeah. really quite beautiful, mm-hmm. um, and and they capture a lot of that of the horror right there. I mean, it's a great experience, uh, just watching that. It's, whew. yeah, it yeah. is a creep, creep, creep fest. And when does it hit uh, U.S. shores? You know, it does not have a release date over here in the U.S. yet. Uh, it has. Uh, it looks like it's been playing in the festival circuit quite a bit. A lot of uh, like uh, Fantastic Fest, uh, some of the big festivals, a lot of horror festivals, and um, I don't know if it has an official release date yet. It's just uh, still kind of in the festival circuit. But hopefully, uh, this fall, I'd like to think it would be a good October release. Direct to digital, baby. I'm all about that now. Hey, yeah, it would work well for that as well. Sure enough. Here's hoping. All right, so mine, I am to the point where I, if it's if Benedict Cumberbatch is in it, I'm just going to go ahead and pick it. Uh, <laughs> the first trailer came out for The Imitation Game, where uh, uh, our, our man Benny plays uh, uh, Alan Turing, English mathematician and logician, helping to crack the Enigma code during World War II. And when I showed you this, you said, uh, and you reminded me that this, uh, that you had read this a couple of years back uh, when it was still on the blacklist, the script, and uh, that you thought uh, Old Turing didn't come off as a very nice fellow. Yeah, it's an interesting script. Uh, he's a very hard-to-like character, uh, but it makes for an interesting character. And I'm curious to see how... Uh, this is what's great about, you know, actually seeing a movie, not just reading the script, but seeing what an actor actually brings to the role. And does he find something in that character, especially somebody like Benedict Cumberbatch, who really has an, an amazing screen presence, 
what is he going to bring to that role that is going to uh, f- where he's going to find those elements of likability um, or just the complexity and it, it it kind of gives you a, you know this do you like him do you hate him is he just too hard to crack just like this code yes i you know i think so too i he's um yeah, I don't. I don't know. I I feel like his his presence is so interesting on stage, and that Alan Turing uh, was such a fascinating historical figure. Um, you know, he died in 1954. He was young uh, when he died. He was born in 1912, and I, I think that um, you know to see what he is able to do with this extremely complex, convoluted. Um, person who was at odds uh with with his place in history at the time you know i think it's going to be an interesting thing to watch um and Uh, and to see how they how they capture both his his you know what he what he offered culturally and what he offers sort of scientifically historically uh and and balance those two things in the film i have not read the script but i'm i'm very much looking forward to seeing the movie yeah me too i I, it's i mean aside from how he comes across in the script it is a really an amazing story and it's it's going to be interesting to see how they how they delve into that and just dig into the this whole history of this code that he was working so it kind of became his obsession yeah i you know i think that uh, well anyway so yes short answer yes it's going to be i think it looks really interesting it's worth catch, ch- checking out the trailer um uh, director morton tildum tildum uh who i can't think of anything off the top of my head. What do I know uh, from him? I think they're all like as Dutch films. Yeah, he, I'm not quite sure what his uh, where he's from, but I haven't heard of any of the films that he's done. I have not either. Uh, on the screenplay by Graham Moore, um, and uh, who's done uh, you know television. Uh, this is, I think, his first feature uh, produced feature film, and mm. uh, so it comes out uh, November 21st in the U.S. Ah, holiday time. It's going to be my birthday week movie, one of them. Very good. And uh, it'll be something that'll be in the award circles, I'm sure. Exactly. Right. So, Cool. Looking very good. Uh, okay, where do we... Uh, I think, uh, you know, it's time. Uh, we need to go tell some tall tales. Here, here. From the director of Time Bandit and Brazil. A new movie full of noise. Flying objects. Trust me, madam. Your underwear is in good hands. <laughs> Seafood. Celebrities. I'm Baron Munchausen. Mm, that sounds nasty. Is it contagious? Compassion. The Sultan is going to cut off my head. And? And? Travel. Now you come back here and expect me to follow you to the ends of the earth. Yes. All right. Lost words? Not yet. 
Not yet. Is that famous? Gravity. We've been dropped through the center of the world. We come out on the other side. Bull. He was full of it. The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. A true story. We've got the film to prove it. All right, Andy. All right. Here we are. Week three of our Trilogy of the Imagination series, Terry Gilliam. The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, 1988. Uh, directed by Terry Gilliam. Written by Charles McKeon and Terry Gilliam. And uh, I don't know, there's other credits in here. But I think those are novel credits. Gottfried August Berger and Rudolf Erich Rasp. Yeah, I think Rasp wrote the wrote the novel, and then Berger wrote a new version of it, translated into German. I don't know how they both got uncredited. I don't. I think it's more just Rasp's story, though. Hmm. So yeah. Well, this is the uh, you know this is the the um, daringly uh, semi true. Adventures of Hieronymus Carl Friedrich Baron von Munchausen. Uh, and I think last week when we were talking about going into this week, both of us were nervous. Yes, we both were a little little hesitant. We're coming off Time it, Bandits and Brazil, which we're building up. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, Brazil, your very favorite film, uh, performed quite well in our ranking. And yes. here we go, wrapping up this series with a What Sound? Well, wrapping up this part of the series. Yes, yes, wrapping up this part of the series. Uh, you know, I, I, I guess in the words of Baron Munchausen, not bad. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I do like this movie. There's a lot of magic in this movie, and it is a very enjoyable film to watch. And to that point, I will say, I watched it with my kids, and they have not shut it off since it's been playing in a loop in my house since wow. since they watched it. So it clearly has found fans right here, which I think is fantastic because it's a it's this beautiful, I mean it's a luscious, just gorgeous, fantastical film that is I mean, it has, you know, like all of Terry Gilliam's films, it's got Things that that are a little more dangerous that uh, kids aren't necessarily always in kids' films. You don't see the figure of death, you know, pulling souls out of people's mouths in in many child, <laughs> many Disney films. <laughs> Not an image that you see, or uh, or even Aphrodite rising. I mean, Venus af- rising out of the uh, the water. And but you know i i kind of talked to them about it and they you know explained what death is and death you know does he's not he's not hurting them it's just their time and you know kind of talked to them about it and they're they're totally fine and they just sit there and they just absorb the magic of that film and that's the thing about the film that i really do enjoy is that it is just uh, magic from beginning to end that i can't help but smile when i'm watching it it just it really takes me in but it's it the story itself uh, the script it's just not a, a perfect script and it it has its lumps and bumps and it takes its time kind of getting going and it kind of takes some turns in it that i don't necessarily you know fall in line with but on the whole i get to the end of it and i go you know what i actually i did enjoy that film it's not you know i wouldn't 
uh, you know, put it over Time Bandits or Brazil, but I certainly do enjoy it, and uh, I think it's a, a fun film and definitely one that's that that is worth watching. Hmm. Okay. I think I'm with you. I'm sort of with you. I don't think I'm all that with you. Yeah. How is that? No, I really, like, I tried really hard, um, you know, and I haven't watched it with my kids. That has not happened yet, uh, but it will. I'm, uh, you know. You you chose Transformers instead. Well, you know, our family movie night, I wanted to start with Time Bandits and then do, and work our way through the series as well. But, um, you know, we've just, it's summer and there's a lot of travel and camps and stuff. And our family movie nights have been totally torn asunder. So anyway. I have not watched this film with my kids. I'm anxious to do so. Um, and, and that, I think, may uh, change sort of the way I feel about the film. Yeah. Um, I, I found it very difficult to engage. And, and part of it, I think, is because of the way I have been set up by Gilliam through Time Bandits in Brazil, uh, particularly comparing it to Time Bandits because it it's really, I think, finds that same audience, right? Um, or, or targets the same audience, mm-hmm. which is this idea of just incredible adventure, um, almost serial adventure, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago. This idea that this is this these are it's made up in a, a story made up of vignettes uh, take us through these adventures, and and Time Bandits was done so clean, so pristinely uh, that you. Your viewing experience is you are like led through this wonderful, uh, practically on a leash. You know, you're led through this journey, through this this world that I think is so magical uh, by these fantastic characters. And uh, the problem I run into with Munchausen starts in a long, drawn out setup that does not clearly define for us. Um, who, which set of characters we're supposed to to really be a- attached to? Uh, there is not enough. Um, well, and that's not even. I, I don't even know if I'm framing that right. But uh, you know, we meet his posse uh, in the broken down theater early, early on, and they're just actors, right? Mm-hmm. And well, then, they're they're actors who look like his posse, right? Um, actors who look like the posse. And, and then we meet them again in his stories, uh, and um, they're, you know, they're the same. They're just younger. Uh, and then they, you know, it proceeds to sort of build the, the story. But we're, you know, I'm not sure after this first, like, 20-minute um, prelude to the story, I'm not sure how to feel about these, these characters and, and their identity. And so it's, they're not good or reliable narrators, I think, to each of these particular segments. They do some funny, goofy things, uh, but but otherwise it's not a very clean narrative. And I think that's the whole feeling I walk away from this movie. It's clumsy. It, it sort of staggers through um, the world of Munchausen uh, without any uh, clear milepost of, of, of how I should be feeling at the time. So by the end, I think the, the ultimate kind of climax of the film is a betrayal. It's, it's a confusing, not even a betrayal, it's just a confusing misstep that I don't know what to believe. Um, and in a film like this, targeting that sort of kid's audience, I'm, I, you know, I'm glad to hear, I'm actually relieved to hear that your, your kids love this movie. I think it, it, is, it bodes well for mine, but I certainly had a lot of trouble, um, you know, letting myself let go um, because the script is such a mess. Well, and I, I 
I agree with you. I, I completely agree with you. There, the 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 beginning, really, it, it's it's kind of confusing. I mean, I, I understand the setup and everything, but it's just like, you know, it, it takes a while getting going. Uh, are we following Baron? Are we following Sally? Uh, is it is it uh, you know? It, it really does kind of become her story as she kind of, or we see the story through her eyes as we go along. Right. Um, and then. And then it's and then it's that bouncing back and forth from um, he's telling the story on the stage. We're watching the the story as you know as it unfolds back. Like we step into his story and we see the story unfolding. Then we're back on the stage and then he has to go stop the Turk and he goes to or the Sultan and he goes to stop the Sultan and he goes off on this adventure and he and at the end he stops the Sultan and the Turks. And uh, but then he's killed and then it's revealed, oh, hey, it was all still part of the story. And he's still just telling telling his tale. And, but lo and behold, by telling the tale, all of a sudden the Turks are gone. And, and I everybody told... knows ain't nobody's business but the Turks. <laughs> That's right. Istanbul was Constantinople. <laughs> oh, so, Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, it's good. It's you, good. you were saying always bring in that reference when you can. <laughs> you don't get to bring it in often enough, right? <laughs> it's true. Oh, the but it doesn't. It 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 clearly doesn't make sense. I mean, there's no logic uh, to, to 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 why any of that happens. Like, I I don't understand. Like, I get to the end and I'm like, okay, so I guess he saves the day through storytelling. And through the magic of storytelling, he, uh, you know, the the sultan disappears, and and all the Turks, because they were in the story, and he uses the story, and they. But it, it, I don't know. The, there's, it's that logic in this world that's not really there. I think what what I did find myself drawn to this time was just the stories. I I love the character. I love the journeys that he goes on, uh, particularly um, Vulcan. In uh, you know when he falls into the center of the earth, uh, Baron and and troop fall into the center of the earth. Uh, I think that is probably my favorite sequence in the entire film, uh, and I think it's all driven by Oliver Reed, who I don't think I've ever seen in such an enjoyable light. I have so much fun watching that sequence. But when you when you look at it in sequence by sequence you know it, you can you can find yourself enjoying it but you're right when you look at it in this whole package of what is really going on here it's kind of just nonsensical and, and maybe that was the intention but i, I think yeah. you're right that's part of the problem of the script that i find when i every ever since i first watched it and and still find it just doesn't. I just don't get the logic there, and I get to the end, and I'm like, okay, well, I guess that is clever, but I don't know if it really works for me. And here's why that's such a big, a weird misstep that Terry Gilliam has done such a great job over his career in building a world that does not cause me to question it. Right, mm -hmm. that there are some very strange things that happen in Time Bandits and Brazil, and my expectation is I'm going to be enough in the world where I'm not going to ask. But because the script is so weird, even when you get to the littlest bits of odd uh, in the film that otherwise would be written off as a, a bit of Gilliam wit, visual wit maybe, 
-hmm. For example, when he goes to Vulcan and, and, you know, they're very small in the when they fall into the pit. Right. The the giants are so much larger over them. And he says, giants are big and strong. And then he reaches in and picks picks up Munchausen and he is the same height. Right. He's actually taller. Right. uh, But he's he's of scale. And they share this moment of, huh, that's weird. Right. Um, And so do I. I'm not able to let that go, right? I'm I'm thinking, why did that happen? That doesn't fit the physics of the world that he's set up for us. Like, there's no reason for that to have happened the way it did. And, you know, I, I get this feeling that, that, you know, Gilliam's intention with the film, and I, you know, obviously I can't confirm this, but uh, that his intention with the film is, um, you know, we're going to tell this story that is going to somehow cement uh, Munchausen's um, you know, stories, his fabrications um, in, you know, a cinematic reality, right? We're going to make these, we're going to to uh, make him a more uh, sort of rational character. We're going to say, we're going to, we're going to give him more weight and, uh, and gravitas uh, by trying to convince the world that there was some truth to what he did. And it'll be done through magic and it'll end in truth. And um, I instead just found myself asking the whole time, how the hell do you want me to, like, get lost in this film? And hmm. it was, it, you know, it was made in a very confusing time. This is another highly controversial, maybe not as highly controversial as Brazil, but it was a controversial uh, movie-making experience. And, it, you know, probably coming right on the heels of Brazil didn't make it any easier. But, um, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about that, uh, you know, in a bit. But this whole idea that another movie made in a political, a, a series of, uh, or a, a setting of political complexity um, you, you know, did that have an impact on the film itself? Right. And it could have, but my hunch is that the film would have ended up this way regardless because the script didn't change that much. It was sized down. I mean, there were big sequences cut out, like the moon sequence was much larger with, you know, several thousand people, as they say, you know, it went from 2000 to two on the moon. Yeah. Um, and, and some of the effect sequences were kind of shortened or, or thinned out and stuff. But, um, I, I don't think there was any drastic changes to the overall structure of the story. So my sense is that, you know, I mean, there may have been some things like that moment where they land in the giants and, uh, that could have been something where, you know, when they got to set and things got changed, then they, that was just their way of getting around it. I mean, you know, that could have been, I don't know. Um, for me, I, I always look at that as just a, one of those funny moments because I, I don't know, I guess for me, it's like, this is a story about a guy who, who always says he's telling the truth, but is clearly always lying. Right. And he, right. he has these fantastical stories that are all just, you know, oversized and crazy. And, but when we get to the end of the film and we go, oh, okay. So basically everything that we've seen in the film is him telling another story. It's all just, you know, his fiction. And so I, I don't know, maybe that makes it easier for me to buy into that stuff. And, you know, I, honestly, that little moment where he and Vulcan look at each other, I actually, I, I laugh at that moment because it's just such a strange little moment. And maybe it's just because I, I found it easier to kind of get into the world and acknowledge the, the problems. I was just like, okay, that's one of those clever little moments that, that the filmmaker used to kind of get past the blue screen giant uh, you know, the shooting that they just had to do for the moon characters. <laughs> yeah, right. 
You know, okay. I mean, I can I can buy it, but like I said, had you know that normally would be a sequence that I would love to let go and just laugh at, but yeah. because everything else is over, and and I can, and now I can't remember is that sequence before or after? I think that that's immediately after the moon. Right, they fall off the moon and and crash into the which into, into the volcano. The the entire moon sequence I find painful, like physically painful to watch. It is yeah, that, ridiculous. That is, that's the hardest uh, sequence for me to get through now as well. And, you know, there, it's it I, even and actually thinking about it, even when I was younger, that was always the sequence that I, that bothered me then. There's something about it that just uh, I don't know. It, it never felt like it worked right. And maybe that's because that is a sequence that had to uh, had to change drastically because of the production problems that the film was going through. I don't know, but it, it, it just has never really worked for me. And Sean Connery was originally going to play the King in the Moon, and Robin Williams ended up stepping in and uh, uncredited. And, and something about Robin Williams, it, that manic Robin Williamsness. Yes. It, it, I like, like when he finally gets his head back on his body and he's like, I'm back. I'm just like, oh, that's... It that's doesn't the Robin fit. Williams that bugs me. Yes, that's the that's the one. That is yeah. the one. Yeah. Uh, I I had a, I have a really difficult time watching it. But even uh, you know, uh, his his wife um, played by oh, please now I've lost it. Um, what's her name? The Queen of the Moon. It's Valentina Cortez. Yes. Cortez. So, okay. So it is I I find it the whole conceit of removing their heads so their bodies can go be carnal and weird uh you know so their heads float around um i i find just these people robin williams uh, and cortese did not just didn't pull it off for me like the, williams as you say was obnoxious and at the end when her head comes to to rescue and unlock the the cage uh, to rescue, um, you know, the three mm-hmm. of them. Um, I, she keeps, like, she's, what we find out that she, her feet are being tickled and her right. body is separate and her feet are being tickled. But she is making such uh, exuberant sounds, uh, such over-the-top sounds that totally get in the way of the dialogue that, you know, we're trying to hear from these other characters, I I just can't watch it. Like I just can't watch it. Um, and it's one of those things that really takes me so far out of the film that it's it's kind of hard to get back into it. Yeah. Um. So, whew, I'm I'm glad we agree on that. Yeah, and you know, I, I I like her as an actress. She's also in the play. She, you know, these characters all kind of pop up in the in the play as well. Like she's yeah. she's a, a violet in the play, and you know, I I like her better there. So I think it's just the way that they're written on the moon. Yeah, and it's just yeah, there's something just off about that. And then it's got like I don't know. It's it's I. I guess I kind of like the, 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 the world that is created on the moon. It, maybe it's just the characters that drive me nuts. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. I think that's fair. Now, I think we both agree that the, uh, the right ordinary Horatio Jackson, played by Jonathan Price, is, is uh, amusing. He is. And, you know, I, I, uh, Terry Gilliam says that uh, Jonathan Price was um, channeling uh, uh, Tom Stoppard, who, from, who co-wrote Brazil, uh, which I think is kind of funny as far as his accent goes, which I, it's a, it's a very funny accent. And I don't know, he cracks me up. I really enjoy him in the role. He plays that, uh, you know, representative of reason 
and uh, order very well. And I, I find that uh, so interesting coming off of uh, <laughs> Brazil, you know? Yeah, exactly. And and not just reason and order, but betrayal, too, right? Am I understanding oh, yeah. that sequence? I mean, he was negotiating with the sultan, uh, you know, in their, their kind of ongoing uh, battle about who is going to, who's going to uh, uh, withdraw first, who's going right. to lose. Yeah, who's uh, gonna? Yeah, who's gonna have to surrender this time? Yeah, surrender. It's, right. Well, it's interesting because I I think that Gilliam, I mean Gilliam and uh, McEwen have both said that they they put a lot of kind of modern politics and stuff into this film, like Thatcher's England, and uh, just the way that uh, politicians you know played these these political games at the expense of the, their people, um, which I think is interesting. I don't know if this film is one that needed that sort of. Uh, Stuff put into it, um, but I do find that interesting with uh, with him and how you know it, it is interesting when you see that scene and you realize that he and the Sultan are kind of negotiating all of this. It's a, it's an interesting little bit. I don't know how much it really helps the story when the whole thing because really it's all about you know I, I don't know in a way it's kind of kind of a, a betrayal to the story of why the Sultan is attacking in the first place, right? Yeah, yes. Which the Sultan, they had already set up, right? The Sultan is attacking because he had uh, because this wager that uh, you know, and, and this is the funniest part about watching this with my kids is because my daughter is obsessed with this fact that the Sultan said, but he said this whatever your strongest right. man could carry, right? I'm like I know, but he didn't think that <laughs> that Baron really had the strongest man who could actually carry all that treasure, and she's like, but he said he didn't he didn't lie. And she was very obsessed and upset at the Sultan about that, which I can I can agree. It's uh, you know yes. the Sultan is just a, a greedy little bastard, and and it's really his fault. But then you go and you see this thing where he is is wheeling and dealing with uh, with Jonathan Price, and all of a sudden it's like, well, okay, wait a minute. I thought this whole thing was because he was upset that that Munchausen took his 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 treasure. So well, yeah, but that was in the story. It right. was in the story. I mean, are we but... to believe that? And, and they were set up to believe sort of that, yes, it is. But what, what I like so, you know, what I do like about that sequence is that, you know, in the story, in Munchausen's story, he was wheeling and dealing over this bottle of, of sherry or wine, right? Right, right. And, and so we've already, uh, we've already established a precedent that this guy is, is not to be trusted. He's, a, he's a, you know, uh, willing to double cross. Right. Right. And then mm -hmm. the next time we meet him outside of the story, he's doing the same thing this time over the battle itself. Right. Yeah. Uh, so. All right. Just um, a bum. He's just a bum. Uh, <laughs> Eric Idle uh, said uh, up until Munchausen, I'd always been very smart about Terry Gilliam films. You don't ever be in them. Go and see them by all means. But to be in them, effing madness. Yep. Yeah, he said he's got two rules, never be in a Kubrick film and never be in a Gilliam film, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is hilarious. I think it is hilarious. And I, you know, he's a, I like his face, you know, I like watching him just interact with the world around him. And yet right. I still uh, find the character tough to, to stomach in this film. Oh really? Yeah, I do. I, I you know, every time he just, every time he just has to hop up and down to get his legs kickstarted. <laughs> uh, I'm like, oh, brother. See, I like all that stuff. I, I, I find myself really enjoying the characters in the film 
uh, more than the film itself. I yeah. like I like you know the way that he has to run and and just the silliness of all these different things. How he trips on the rock and he has to chase falls, down the bullet. Falls asleep yeah, fall. under the apple tree. Right. <laughs> I you know and I should say I do like I, I like Charles McEwen as Adolphus and uh, uh, Winston Dennis as Albrecht and and Jack Purvis in particular as Gustavus. You know I think he's very funny. Um, you know, and I do like all of them when they meet on, on the ship of death playing cards. Ooh, yeah. You know, I think that's a really, and you know, you would think I would like this movie more just to, kind of stepping back a bit because of my, um, fascination with movies about these kind of masculine characters taking back their power. And here is a whole movie about a team of these men through age who are finding a way to take back power. Right. Yeah. Right. And and so I, I guess maybe that's why I'm doubly disappointed in the film that I that I don't like it as much because I feel like it's a theme that I'm already um, I'm already sort of conditioned to like right now at this point in my life. And so I was just disappointed that it didn't quite live up to that standard for me. Well, I and I can totally agree. I mean, it's it is a tricky film because it is such a messy one. And, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I definitely think that uh, it's one that people could have some troubles with because of that. Um, but, you know, like I said, my kids have really latched onto it. And I wasn't quite expecting that. But, uh, but it makes me happy because it is kind of this magical fantasy film. And I don't think that they care so much that the story doesn't make sense. <laughs> well, that's, that they're, that's they're abundantly fine. clear. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and and of course Uma. Ah, uh, Uma. Ooh, Uma. Seventeen years old when she made this. Really? Yeah. I didn't catch that. Seventeen years old as Venus yep. making out with John Neville. <laughs> right? Oh, Uma. Uh, yeah, I think this was uh, uh, not her first film, but definitely one one of her first films, and uh, I guess that. Her mother was calling her when she was on set and uh, trying to get her to come back so that she could um, graduate and, go, you know, get her diploma and stuff. But uh, oh, that's too funny. The show must go on. <laughs> that is really funny. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think she's she uh, works very well as Venus in the film. I mean, I don't you know. It's not a big role. It's not a a big performance, but I think that she, you know, she does what she needs to do as Venus, which is just, you know, make everybody fall in love with her. Yeah, no, she does. She's delightful. She's lovely. And she, she uh, plays a great foil to, um, you know, as you say, to Vulcan and, and, um, you know, he, it's believable that he is wildly jealous. Uh, and, and going back makes to him. It very funny. Oh yeah. And I just have to like the moment, like when he, <laughs> When she has to calm him down because, you know, he's so angry and he's just thrown them all back into the whirlpool. And, yeah. and she calms him down and he looks at her and then he does that little, like, little twinkle of his eyes, a little, you know, the little blinky blink. I, uh, that just makes me lose it. I, I, Oliver Reed, it's, it's like a comic genius in this film. And uh, there's every bit of him as Vulcan just, I couldn't stop laughing. So uh, that was, for me, the biggest exciting thing about rediscovering this film is how funny Oliver Reed is in it. Yes. Yeah, and, that, and easily plays, the best sequence in the film. And he plays so well opposite Uma because she is so gorgeous and he is just uh, this like hunched over, shrunken, dirty, hairy man 
just nothing appealing about him. And that's just something that I think Gilliam played really well is kind of that story of Venus and Vulcan. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and you know, it, most of the, of the film, I find these sequences or sequences and shots uh, are just too long. I think most of the, of, of the sequences, I think it just could be tightened up. The reveal of the, the clamshell opening up mm-hmm. is painfully long and it's perfect. It is perfect. It is. It's just you see the ribbon, and you're like, that thing's gonna fall, and it build. It just does a great job of building anticipation, uh, especially for her little nymphs to fly down from the rafters and wrap her up, right in that uh, dress. It's it's really funny. It is. It really is. So that works well for me too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, who else do you want to talk about? Um, well, you mentioned Winston Dennis already as mm-hmm. one of uh, one of his uh, his men, but I, I just wanted to point out that Winston Dennis has been in every film we've talked about so far uh, that Terry Gilliam's done. He has always been hidden, though. In Brazil, he is he was the samurai. Yes, and in Time Bandits, he was the uh, Minotaur. That's really funny. So it's great to actually see him beyond all of those, beyond all of those roles, uh, doing something a little different. And uh, it's just it's fun to see him uh, uh, playing this giant uh, burly character who uh, really has finally found himself and just wants to be da- do dainty things. Where's <laughs> his regular clothes with the little dainty like hat? Right. <laughs> That's uh, really funny that he was the Minotaur. Yeah, yeah. I didn't make that connection at all. No, I didn't either. I, I had to look it up. Wow. So, yeah, so that's Winston Dennis. But And then I think last, uh, well, almost last, but Sarah Polly, I think, yeah, uh, we, we definitely need to talk about because I, I think she's great in this. She was uh, eight years old when they made this film, and I, I think she plays this role so well and she carries the the uh, the film as much as she needs to especially as a child actress and i think what's um important to know is like when you watch the film she she never looks not in the film but when you hear the stories of uh, her kind of talking about her experience on the film and she talks about how it was truly a horrible experience for her and you know she was traumatized she always felt scared when she was on set and you know this was what i was alluding to back when you're talking about michael bay you know there were explosions going off near her uh that she was you know afraid were going to hurt her they were putting her in giant tanks of cold water and that she had to stay in for hours uh, she was working longer than she should have been allowed to and, uh, and tired very frequently. It was, uh, a, you know, a, a brutal uh, shoot for a young eight-year-old kid. And she really, really hated it. And and she enjoyed the people and she enjoyed that they were trying to make things happy for her and everything. But she had a miserable, miserable time. And I don't think uh, she's ever really said anything about uh, how about having had a good time or uh, it was a learning experience or anything. She just talks about it was a rough time. And but I think that's really interesting that. And it shows her acting skills that you never see that she never comes across in any way other than what she needs to be for the scene she's playing. Yeah, totally agree. And I, I was thinking about that particularly, again, in relation to Time Bandits, when you look at the strength of, of Gilliam and his casting folks to be able to come up with two such strong kids. 
Yeah. Uh, because these kids are the custodians of the story, right? As you say, even in all the confusion of, of Munchausen, um, really it becomes Sarah's story to, to get back and save the city. And she's the one who keeps reminding him to, to keep moving forward and to, you know, come home. And, and she is ultimately the savior, um, you know, on the boat. Um, you know, to wakes everybody up from their, you know, falling into their pattern of just playing cards. And, and so it's really her story. And, and she, um, she is a fantastic child caretaker of it. Um, you know, ultimately she's, she is really fun to watch. Yeah. Uh, she really I totally is. agree with that. Yeah. And Gilliam said one of the reasons that he, uh, cast her is because she had such great teeth. <laughs> she, like, she had those, that eight year old mouth, like half of her teeth were missing. Half of them were still growing. You in. know, that's and true. Yeah. She really does just, yeah, you know, she's got this cute little face that when she opens her mouth, it's just like, you know, just this mound of these, uh, you know, teeth that are all kind of all just over the place. Gaping holes. <laughs> yep. Yep. So that's really that's funny. Great. That's great. And then last but not least, I think we absolutely should talk about John Neville, who I think is, uh, you know, the film has its problems. But I tell you, if there is uh, a person who could have captured uh, Baron von uh, von Munchausen and played him any better and, and, and carried the look so well, I think John Neville just nails it. Yeah, you know, I think you're right. Um, I, and so much of the weirdness, you know, he is kind of a victim of. I still can't wrap my head around why why they age the way they do thematically. Like why I, you know I it seems like if it's just that oh my gosh when they go on adventures they get younger um, then that's not enough. Well, and I think that is it unfortunately, uh, and I don't think it's ever going to make much more sense than that. I think it's the thing you know it's it's all about how I, I think it's really his external age is ex- kind of like an. Uh, showing his uh, the the his internal mindset maybe mm-hmm. where you know he's feeling older or he's feeling younger and it really just kind of plays that way which I think is an interesting conceit I I kind of agree with you I don't know if it ever completely works for me um, but I like the idea of it I yeah, just like, don't know that's I... one of those things that totally works in the script right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but you're right, and and so I, you know, when I watch that, I see that I'm like, oh goodness, there he is, getting young again. But right. but you know, from the moment he steps, um, you know, he steps on stage in the beginning. I mean, you right. like you're you just sort of can't help but get wrapped up in in his delivery of Hieronymus uh, Munchausen. Yeah, uh, he's he's terrific, and and you know, to go back to the trilogy of the imagination. Uh, kind of lineage uh he is the custodian of this old man's adventure and imagination you know and that's a that's kind of a significant uh that's a significant role um both culturally uh you know because you want him to come off as um you know fantastical but not daft right right he needs to not be senile uh, or, you know, coming down with sort of Alzheimer's. He needs to be be able to be taken seriously. And I think that's a delicate line to walk, and I think he ends up doing it very, very well. Oh, absolutely. I, I think he he plays opposite the insanity so well that you— uh, not, the, not just insanity, but impossibility in everything that's going on in this world. And he, he plays it so well, like you believe that— this is a guy who's experienced these things all his life, and it's all just kind of that's how things are now. Yeah, 
Yeah, I, I think so. I, he he's he's definitely worth catching. He's yeah. he's great, and you know he uh, he had taken a, a hiatus from film. He hadn't been in films in quite a while. I think it was, uh, uh, gosh, he'd been in some TV series in the early '80s. And um, and then I think he had gotten back on stage and was doing stage. And I think at the time he was running a uh, a theater company in Canada when Gilliam or uh, one of his associates ended up um, kind of coming to, hey, what about uh, John Neville? And and he ended up being perfect for the film. And I'm thrilled that he was cast. Um, and uh, yeah, and then I you know sadly he passed away just a few years ago in uh, 2011 from uh, Alzheimer's disease. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry I said that. <laughs> it's it's rough. It's a hard disease. Yeah. Goodness. Hey, you know, to be, uh, you know, he was in he, a lot yeah. after this film. I mean, he's been in like a hundred things. Like he's been, he's he's got a, a long uh, resume, but, um, you know, a lot of television, a lot, lot, lot of television. Um, and um, just a, a wonderful sort of character player. I don't think we even brought him up that he was in The Fifth Element. In fact, I don't even remember him being in The Fifth Element. Yeah, we didn't talk about him. General Stittert? Yeah. Interesting. Uh, we, we did not talk uh, about him in that film. Huh. Uh, he was. He was always on the bridge. Uh, you know, he was... He's once you see him there, once you kind of picture him there, he's he's absolutely there. He's always standing right next to the president. Oh, okay, you know? gotcha. Yeah. Right, yeah. Uh, anyhow, uh, good. So, the you want to talk a little bit about the controversy? I think it's a short one. Uh, well, <laughs> uh, we could talk about it at great length. You know, I, I, if you really are interested in learning about the controversy, I mean, there's a fantastic documentary that's a little over an hour, I think, on the DVD and the Blu-ray uh, that really goes into into a lot of depth as to what happened. But really, this is just one of those things where, you know, things weren't gelling. I mean, they, they had a producer on board who I think promised more than he could deliver. Um, what was his name? Thomas Shuley, I believe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, uh, you know, he got Terry uh, excited about filming in Rome at Chinichita Studios, that ended up being kind of a big mistake that cost a lot of money, and uh, a lot. I mean, I, th- I think it cost. You know, as as everybody seemed to say, you know, they they found ways to these the people in the Italian system kept finding ways to charge more and more money for things, and there was no savings at all by shooting there. So that by the time they got. Uh, started into production. I, I mean, I can't remember. I don't think I have the numbers written down, but somebody said, you know, by the time they were uh, uh, making the film, they were already, um, what was it? Uh, I don't remember how many millions of dollars over budget. By the time they were, uh, oh, here it is, $8 million over budget before, uh, one month before they started shooting. So it's just it was a film that uh, it just kind of the production itself got kind of out of control. And it was the biggest production at the time that uh, Terry Gilliam had worked on. And so he would ask the producer, well, what are all these people doing? And he'd say, well, you know, they're they're all working in their individual departments. If you want to know, I don't know, but you'd have to talk to the department heads to really figure it out. And it's just one of these things that kind of snowballed and kind of grew uh, much larger than it should have. Unfortunately, at the same time, 
Columbia Pictures that was paying for the film uh, underwent a uh, changing of the guard, uh, kind of like what happened uh, in our last story we told. Mm-hmm. And and the new guard had to uh, basically kind of didn't want to handle what the old guard was doing. When Don Steele came in as the head of production, she didn't want, uh, didn't kind of get behind the project. And, uh, you know, they managed to to wade through. They found the right people to make things happen. The, you know, it, it sounds like from the numbers that people say, it ended up costing about twice what the original budget was. It went from like $23 million up to $46 million and change and you know there's disagreements about that but that's kind of what the what you know the general consensus is and um and then columbia uh, uh because they were again this whole changing the guard thing they didn't really get behind it and when they did a release for it it was a very very small release i think initially it was 47 screens in opening weekend and they ended up expanding it to about 100 screens but they you know as terry gilliam says you know an art house film gets 400 screens uh, and they only had 100 and some for this it mm-hmm. just was not something they got behind and it kind of fizzled and died at the box office and that's I mean, that's really the the kind of the long and the short of the story. It's definitely more of the short. I mean, it's it's a really interesting story. And I, I definitely recommend anyone who really wants to get into the meat of it to check out the documentary on the uh, on the disc. It is really fascinating. I mean, you bring up just the just the shakeup when when because um, all of this happened right around Columbia getting sold to Sony. Right. And and just that in itself and how the politics led to an overt advocacy against everything Terry Gilliam stood for in hmm. the theater. And, and the, the fact that, you know, they, all of the, the agreements between Thomas Shuley and David Putnam uh, were all around a budget right in the 35 million from the beginning when Don Steele came in and said, no, it's 25 and we're not budging. Um, after the movie was being made. I mean, it's just, it, it's a fascinating um, tale of, of, you know, politics getting in the way. And it would just happen to happen to a guy like Terry Gilliam, who ends up, uh, you know, who is a, a strong advocate for his own work. So, Well, uh, and, and you know what's sad is uh, you, you hear Terry Gilliam talk about the problems that happened on this shoot. I mean, there were things that happened completely unrelated to, uh, to production, uh, you know, the yeah. horses, there was this outbreak of some weird horse disease in Spain where their horses were all being trained and they couldn't ship their horses to the set. They wouldn't allow them to travel the horses. So they had to use totally different horses that had not been trained. They had a costume issue where the costumes got uh, locked up in this customs strike and they, they the customs wouldn't release any of the luggage. And so they didn't have any of the costumes they needed. I mean, Terry Gilliam... It's it's one of those guys. He he's kind of become one of those guys who's, you know, it's this Orson Wellesian um, ability to draw bad luck to him. You know, it's like yeah. you, you watch you watch the uh, the movie about him trying to make uh, the man who killed uh, Don Quixote, uh, which is a fascinating documentary about a film that he was half made and then got shut down and never finished. Uh, and this film came so close to that. It came close to being another one of those films that, uh, that just never would have gotten off the ground, but somehow the right people ended up jumping onto this production and kind of making it work. You know, and that's why I want to go back to that, to my comment earlier, right? It's this idea of a film being made in under duress, right? Yeah, Even yeah. if the script doesn't get changed as a result of all these budget conversations, there is no way that his magnetism for crisis, 
doesn't seep into other elements of the of the shoot, right? It, it, there's no way that doesn't go to helping to define Sarah Polly feeling scared on set or uh, Eric, Eric Idle saying, you know, never be in a Terry Gilliam film or, you know, I, it just, there, there's no way people don't sense that this thing is sort of a ship of doom. Yeah. Um, even if it's, it's intangible, um, this was a film that was made in crisis. And my assertion is that that comes through in the way the script was executed to screen. Um, and, and, you know, so many of the problems that I have with it are a, a result of, of, at least in some part, a result of that. And I, and I wholeheartedly agree, but I would also, uh, as a kind of a, 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 you know, a caveat to that, I don't know if it's a caveat, but, you know, another thing to go along with that, I would say that, um, that uh, you know, Terry Gilliam brings an amazing ambition to his projects when he's doing them, mm-hmm. and he's always trying new things, and he's pushing people to do things that are out of the ordinary and maybe not what they expect, and they're probably like, I don't think this is going to make any sense, but at least he's trying things and doing things that shakes things up a little bit. And, you know, one of the other um, people in the in the documentary, I can't remember who it was, but one of them said, you know, this is a, a guy who... Um, doesn't get to make as many movies as I want to see him make. I want to see more Terry Gilliam movies. And I, you know, despite everything that went wrong with this film, I would much rather see something like this that actually is by a filmmaker who has ambition, who's trying to do something, than just give more money to the next Joe Blow, who is just going to do what the executives tell him and crank out another piece of Hollywood garbage that just is instantly forgettable. And I completely agree with that, because while this film has problems, I find it so much more interesting than a lot of the just the schlock that gets cranked out of the system. Well, and and ultimately, I agree. And I would say, you know, I, caveat or not, I, I do not contend that I, I would never say anything about Terry Gilliam not having ambition uh, to make the film. This is to me, this is an, a, a sadness of execution, not ambition. Yeah. Uh, clearly. The guy has a vision, an incredible eye, and I can't wait, frankly, after this experience talking about these three films, uh, I can't wait to do this again because films that I like even more are in this are in the the category outside of these first three Gilliam films. I, I'm, uh, you know. Uh, I'm very excited to see to to revisit some of those. Uh, oh you. yeah, so, yeah, I absolutely am. So you've already uh, touched on the budget a little bit. Do you want to uh, wrap up that part? Yeah, uh, like I said, it uh, did not do well. Um, although oddly, uh, Columbia Pictures, uh, it's one of those films that it, it got critic pra- critical praise. Uh, a lot of the critics fell in love with this this world that he created, even if they did acknowledge any story problems. Um, but and Columbia uh, clearly knew that it had done uh, well in parts of the world, and even in the U.S. it had its fans. And this was actually the first DVD that Columbia issued. When really? They, when, they, when they first made the transition, yeah. I had no idea. So, so there you go. Yeah, it's one of those weirdnesses. Like somehow they've they have latched onto it, and they it's like they know that there's something there, and they're going to keep kind of pushing it out there. I mean, they lost a lot of money on this. I I, I find it hard to believe that they will actually make. Uh, their money back on it. I mean, like I said, the the film was supposed to cost twenty three million. It ended up costing 
uh, about 46.6 million adjusted for today's dollars. That's about an 80, almost an 88 million dollar film. So that's a pretty reasonable budget. I mean, it's 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 big. Yeah, I, I think yes. I actually heard. I haven't researched this, but I, I I heard that this was at the time the biggest budget of a film that had been released. I don't know right. if that's true or not, but. Uh, certainly people spend more money on movies these days. Um, and then, like I said, it got a very, very modest release from Columbia. It only ended up making domestically $8 million, which is adjusted about $15 million. I couldn't find anything internationally on this, but using those figures that we have, this is uh, the biggest loser that we actually have on our list uh, of adjusted profit per finished minute. It lost about five hundred eighty thousand dollars per finished minute when oh. it uh, comes down to it. Wow. Yeah, and like Our, I said, that's, uh, yeah. that doesn't include international, so maybe it maybe that would help it bump it up a little bit. But but even still, <laughs> I'm telling you that actually that figure makes me deeply sad for this film. Yeah. That's it, it, that's too much. It too, is too it's, much. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that is said, but you know, like I said, it it was critically praised. I mean, it got four Oscar nominations for best, and we didn't mention these people, but we certainly should. Uh, the the art direction uh, by uh, Dante Ferretti uh, it was just stunning. Um, they lost the art direction Oscar to Batman, and which yeah. is chronic. Yeah, uh, best costume design, which uh, you know, gorgeous costumes all through the film by uh, what was her name? I lost it here. Uh, costumes by uh that is the thing i mean you talk, we talk about sort of the visual world and this you know uh, this film i think really represents um a continued maturing of bringing vision to screen right in terms of art direction set direction costume design uh i i think it's it it is you can see the maturity coming from Time Bandits through Brazil to this. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's Gabriela Pescucci did the costume design. It's And this is something that, yeah, like you just said, Gilliam really knows how to create these worlds, and he latched on to brilliant people in Italy to kind of bring this stuff to life. And... Um, I mean, it really shows. Uh, costume design, though, lost to Henry V. Best visual effects. They had uh, great visual effects in this, especially for the time. And the the physical effects that he used, even when it's blue screen, it all just, everything looks so great. And, of course, it lost to the abyss. And I got to say, you know, water tentacle. Yeah. yeah and, then, and, then, and then best makeup, it actually lost to Driving Miss Daisy, which, you know, it's, there's an age makeup, uh, you know, thing. Yeah. In Driving Miss Daisy, but there's a lot of age makeup here. And, I, you know, I don't know. This is one I could see them giving to this. But uh, um, his, but Terry Gilliam's wife, Maggie Weston, who we also haven't talked about, um, she did the hair design and makeup design on the film. And, uh, you know, she did a great job in this one. I, I really do enjoy the looks that everyone has. I agree. I, I do agree. Yeah. Um, but it didn't help it at the box office. No. That's a bummer. Yeah. Well... Uh, I think uh, I think we should probably flick chart it. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, and you'll be able to see our stack rankings of our favorite movies, and we'll just see, will the good Baron crack the top 100? All right, here we go. So the adventures of Baron Munchausen, or the Born Supremacy. Born Supremacy. Yeah, I think I'd agree with you there. Munchausen or the Sandlot? The Sandlot. 
Yeah. <laughs> that's, you know, I, I would, uh, gosh, that's a hard one. I, I probably would go Sandlot, but I feel a little guilty about that one. Well, and I should Slightly say, I, I feel like I should be on the fence about that one a little bit, just because I haven't watched it with my kids. Like, Sandlot is not a film that I'm generally going to put on all that often, yet uh, with, you know, my kids like it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, so once they see Mooncat, then maybe they'll be like you and like your kids. Like, we'll end up watching it more. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm I, I'm at a point where I'm just like, God, maybe I should get this thing if my kids are going to watch it this much. Because, I mean, it's it, I like that they enjoy watching these fantastical stories. So, but anyway, we already picked Sandlot. All right. So, Munchausen or Escape from New York? Munchausen. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Munchausen or The Parallax View? Um, probably the parallax view. I think I would do Munchausen on this one. Uh, and again, it's the, it's the, the thrill of the, the fantasy in it, even with the story problems, I really just enjoy this, the stuff going on in this. And it is one that, uh, that I can watch with the kitties. All right. I don't have much skin in this one. Okay. Munchausen or bullet. Um, I would do Munchausen. Yeah, on this probably one. Munchausen again. Yeah. You you actually convinced me of that months ago. <laughs> I feel guilty now. Yeah. I feel like I need to go watch Bullet again just so I can find something else to appreciate in it. Because no, yeah, this is on you. About. This is very right. much on you. <laughs> A Munchausen or Christmas in July? Uh, Munchausen. Yeah, I think I would agree there. Uh, Munchausen or Atlantic City? I'd say Atlantic okay. City. Interesting. I would say Munchausen. I'm surprised you say Atlantic City. I know. Me too. I say yeah. Munchausen. I take it back. <laughs> okay. All right. There I, we it's go. like Munch- I'd forgotten what Atlantic, what I felt about Atlantic City. I just answered so quickly. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, it didn't crack the top 100, but it's close-ish. It's 108 out of okay. 100, 142 movies. 108. Mm-hmm. Not bad. Not too bad. Not well, too bad. Well, it's not. It's not great. Let's be honest. Bottom two third. Bottom third. All right. <laughs> uh, but where do we go from here? That's the most important question. Yeah. Well, we're going to be continuing our Terry Gilliam se- series. We're done with his trilogy of the imagination, as he calls it, with uh, these three films. But uh, you know. These next two, like you said, pretty exciting stuff. So uh, we're going to be jumping into The Fisher King next. I, I, I'm i really excited about this film. Me too. Yeah. I love it, and yeah. I can't wait to see it again. I haven't seen it in quite a while, so uh, I am definitely looking forward to it. Yeah, I haven't seen it in, in a long, long time, but, um, boy, my memory of it is just is so good and so clear, you know? Um just really clear between Mercedes Rule and Amanda Plummer and uh, just Jeff Bridges, obviously. That's just wonderful. This is mm. this is the the uh, the Terry Gilliam film that Robin Williams was meant to be in. Yes, because he's not being the manic, crazy yeah. Robin Williams that annoys me. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Right. And interesting tidbit: if somebody uh, wants to go back and listen to all of our episodes, but there was a an in joke from this movie that I did throw into an episode long ago that I don't think anybody ever, at least they, if they got it, they never told me they got it. Did I get it? 
I don't know if you did or not. I'm. I'm. I don't I'll, know. Maybe I'll bring it up next week and just see if I get it. <laughs> I don't right. even remember. I don't remember it, and I know this movie pretty well. Don't do it now, because I'll feel like I, a, I won't. I won't. Uh, I'll wait. Doofus. I'll just throw it in there. Oh man, now it's, <laughs> now it's like a test. I know it'll make it exciting. Oh. All right. Hey, good talk, man. I'm glad we did this uh, uh, this trilogy, and uh, I certainly enjoyed talking about them with you. I'm very much looking forward to next week. Uh, Absolutely. And uh, between now and then, I'm going to go to bed. I've got a date with Venus, so... <laughs> Okay, I'm going to go first uh, because I love it. It's like a warning. <laughs> and it uh, maybe I only find it amusing because I've seen the movie. Uh, <laughs> this, is, this is called Baron Munchausen Review by Steve. A fun movie, but you must be willing to suspend your disbelief. Watch it with an open mind and don't get hung up on special effects which very well might have been ahead of their time. Four stars. Wow. That's it. Why is that funny to me? I really, like, I read that and I laughed out loud. Like, who is going to watch this movie and not suspend their disbelief? Right. Who is going to watch this and not have it, like, maybe you could use this review as an example of me not having an open mind because I had so many problems with the script. But really... The guy walking around with the ankle weights or the carrying all the money to spend the display. <laughs> throwing ships around, right, throwing falling off the moon. Around, exactly. <laughs> Using yes. the rope of the queen of the moon's hair. I could have sworn this was a documentary about the real pair of moons. It's a documentary. Well, mine What's is yours? a two star review by Headbanger Duh, <laughs> who said, okay, I think I missed something. This 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 the this is going to tell you a lot about Headbanger Duh. This was written in 2005, mm. but just you'll you'll hear it. What kind of movie is this? I put the VHS into my machine, expecting a swashbuckling adventure, and I get this instead of a swashbuckling action. I get some five-year-old fantasy about some wacko and his silly sidekicks. And worst of all, one of the leading characters is a little girl, not a day older than eight. And her reaction when the Baron wants to quit is so stereotypical and contrived. You can't quit. I don't like you anymore. How Disney-ish. Instead of a dashing hero sword fighting with 20 bad guys, I got a weirdo who runs 150 miles an hour. Instead of thrills, excitement, and humor, I got an old man traveling to the moon in a hot air balloon. Come on. And meeting people with detachable heads and some white-faced dude screaming, I am your elephant of joy. Oh, for Pete's sakes. There are some okay scenes near the end, but it's not worth your time or money, and you should just go read Mask of Zorro again instead. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Ah, uh, yes. I knew I'd reviewed something on Amazon. Ah, <laughs> uh, Headbanger Duh has been <laughs> unveiled. My hacker alias, Headbanger Duh. Oh, Amazon. Amazon. <laughs>
I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.